Joe, Joe Brewer, welcome to Radio Wolf again. Uh, I'm so happy to have you on the show again. Great. So nice to be back. Joe, uh, you are back in Colombia, I just heard. And you are back in your uh, bioregion project that you're working there and stewarding since many years. And this time I would uh, like to talk with you about something that we in Evolve uh, start to get very excited about and what we heard that you are uh, kind of involved in since many years and thinking about a lot, uh, this is regenerative cultures, the vision of regenerative cultures as a different vision of how we can live as humans and more than humans here on earth. And if you allow me to just dive into this and ask you, um, regenerative cultures uh, is, sounds beautiful, but uh, what are we talking about? What is this vision? What is fascinating? How did you get into this? And why do you think this is important? Mm. Let me begin by saying that it's sometimes helpful to construct a counter frame that allows us to see what we're talking about. And oftentimes regenerative culture is contrasted with extractive culture. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they're actually opposites, it's just that it lets us begin to see it. Extractive culture, so this is, we'll say regenerative culture is in some ways the opposite or at least goes in a very different direction. Extractive culture is based on the illusion of separation, mm -hmm. such as humans are separate from nature, so we can take whatever we want. And if we hurt nature, we don't hurt ourselves. So an extractive culture starts with this basis in separation. And by contrast, then, a regenerative culture begins with the understanding that nothing is separate, mm -hmm. that everything is integrated and everything is interdependent. An extractive culture also will tend to create value around reductionism. So they will reduce the forest to the price of lumber. Mm -hmm. They'll reduce the water to the money that can be made by selling water to residents of a town. This reductionism that happens in extractive culture. By contrast, a regenerative culture is deeply relational. And as a relational field, it's difficult to select a single value that can then be given a number. So, for example, if I think of my relationship to my mother what kind of relational field I have to my mother, I may value her for having given birth to me or for provided me with milk when I was a baby or for giving me housing and shelter, for being my role model, a number of different things I may value. It would be very difficult and it would be offensive to try to give a, a, a value in money, to say the value of my mother is $10,000 and If someone told me that it would cost 15000 I just wouldn't have paid for it. So this idea that we can reduce very diverse and very complex relationships to a number, that is something that regenerative cultures have a very hard time doing. Now, I'm just starting to give us a sense that in the extractive world, cultures, human cultures, are based on separation, on the reduction or the simplification of value, And then they tend to be expressed through either the power over something that we choose to extract from or having the power placed upon us as though we are oppressed or enslaved. And these are typical feelings within an extractive culture. 
which should sound very familiar because pretty much all of our modern day capitalist market-based economy is expression of, cap of this extractive culture. Regenerative culture is deeply relational, holistic, inclusive, participatory. And so instead of having power over, uh, we tend to have power with. So we will notice that in a regenerative culture, we find ourselves in relationships where we can cooperate, collaborate, co-create in an inclusive and participatory way. And the deepest version of this that humans could probably know is that we're part of a living earth, whereas the extractive culture would say the earth is dead. It's just a set of dead resources. We're part of a living earth. This living earth is the great mother. We have a relationship to this life-giving motherly, motherly energy. And that we were born into a family of human and non-human species who are all children of the same earth. Mm -hmm. In this way, we're never alone. We're always in a context where we have family. That family might feel very strange to us, like the bacteria in your stomach that's digesting your food. Technically, from a biological point of view, that, that's your family. But as a human being, it may be difficult to relate to that bacteria. But we can already start to see that regenerative culture is very, very different from extractive culture. And so when we start to ask ourselves, what happens when we live as living beings who truly are part of a regenerative system or part of the living system of the earth, but we live as though the separation of extractive culture is true? That separation is not true. It's a lie. But if we live within that lie, very quickly we find ourselves in two harmful situations. We find ourselves colonized and we find ourselves traumatized. So to be in an extractive culture is to be colonized and to be traumatized. So now let's use the contrast. To be in a regenerative culture means to be decolonized or to find our sovereignty or our innate value that we can express in an empowered way, and also to heal the traumas of the extractive cultures. To enter into a regenerative culture is to begin a process of deep healing. And so maybe I'll stop there to say, where would you like to go from here? Because this rabbit hole goes deep and mm -hmm. we can explore many facets of regenerative culture. But maybe I'll stop there to ask for your guidance. I mean, the main question that is on my mind, this sounds beautiful, but how do we get there? Because in itself, it is a beautiful idea, but it, the idea, uh, I mean, they are helpful to guide us somewhere, but this regenerative culture, as you described it, uh, is based on relationship. So then uh, to build relationships, we must build um, uh, an environment for relationships. So I understand, and correct me if this is a wrong understanding, that the foundation of a regenerative culture is to re- Uh, discover our relatedness to our environment. Uh, if that is so, do you see uh, uh, new forms of uh, creating this regenerative culture and how, how does this look like? I do see it as new forms of culture because most of us alive today are the descendants of conquered people. So all humans alive today have indigenous ancestors but most of us were not born into an indigenous culture. We're actually born into the slave uh, populations of cultures that ex experienced genocide. Many indigenous cultures were destroyed. 
the remaining people were enslaved. They were then colonized. And then we became the descendants of those people, most of us in the world today. And actually, many indigenous people today are experiencing cultural versions of this colonization. I start here because the way that we find the connection to regenerative culture is to begin letting ourselves feel the pain and the grief of what is happening in the world. Mm -hmm. As the death worker, Stephen Jenkinson, likes to say, Stephen Jenkinson provides hospice care to people and has helped thousands of people to die with, with dignity. He said that one of the first things that we need to do when we enter into relationship with the world today is that we enter into a relationship with a lot of death, mm -hmm. which means that we enter into a world of pain and suffering and loss. And this is one of the interesting things about regenerative culture is while regenerative culture is fundamentally about the feeling of being alive, desire, joy, exuberance, awe, curiosity, many beautiful aspects of being alive, it's also about pain, suffering, loss, grief, despair. Mm. And it's about opening ourselves to all of those feelings. If you were to go into a place like where I live in Barichara, Colombia, and ask yourself, how do I relate to the water? Well, very quickly, you would discover that all of the rivers in this landscape are dead. They were all killed because of deforestation, because of pollution, because of fighting between neighbors, and about extraction of too much water. Mm -hmm. So to feel a relationship to the water is to feel death and loss. Mm -hmm. But there's a silver lining, just like in a thunderstorm, where there's the dark part of the storm and the silver lining, which is that as we start to feel into the pain of the loss and the death, we become more sensitive to what is still alive. Mm -hmm. So part of the work that I do is in landscape restoration. So I do work with restoring of soils, with water retention, with reforestation. And my sensitivity to the landscape that was killed, to the river that is dead, is exactly the same sensitivity that allows me to relate to what it would feel like to bring the river back to life. Mm -hmm. And this is how opening up to the pain and the loss of what has already happened begins a process of healing within myself. So there's something like awakening to pain and with the pain, awakening to all of life, mm -hmm. which is definitely a process. It doesn't happen just in one moment for most of us. And then beginning to relate to, you know, how do I feel about what's happening in the world? And how do I feel about my role, my complicity, my responsibility to what is happening in the world? So I might feel shame and humiliation, anger, sadness. But then if I stay with those difficult feelings, they begin to relax after they're expressed. Mm -hmm. And then I begin to feel the gentleness of aliveness, the feeling of love, the feeling of gratitude, how lucky I am to be alive in this time. But I have to go through the grief and the pain to get there. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the things about regenerative culture is that in, a, in an ancestral context, like an indigenous culture that had not been destroyed, where they were in harmony with their landscape, to feel regenerative culture would be to be in relationship to all of that living world. Mm -hmm. But to be in that relationship now is to relate to degraded landscapes, to relate to the colonized humans around us who are still part of the extractive culture, mm 
mm-hmm. to relate to the parts of ourselves that are still part of that culture. Mm-hmm. And so awakening to regenerative culture doesn't feel beautiful at the beginning because we have to go through the truth and the authenticity of where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Listening to you and both parts that you're expressing, uh, the pain, uh, but also the aliveness, the key is relatedness. And uh, also hearing uh, your work, uh, working with landscapes, uh, our relatedness to landscape seems to be something that uh, seems to be part of this vision of a regenerative culture. First, uh, when you talk about the landscapes you're working in, in Colombia, the rivers being killed by extractive culture and our capacity to feel the pain, but our also capacity to feel the possibility, potential of regeneration. All that is a certain way of being in the world that um, hangs on my really being somewhere, which is uh, something that uh, also in our uh, uh, cyber space, hyper reality is uh, kind of an alien concept because we are everywhere at the same time right now. As for example, I'm in Germany, you are in Colombia, where are we right now? But this being somewhere means that I really am, am, am rooted in a landscape, in a bioregion, and I am, am part of this, and my consciousness is not in separation of that seems to be something that uh, is alien to our modernist mindset where we are kind of uh, very much uh, individuated separate beings who can move anywhere and then stay myself. Is this uh, the route to have a different relationship to earth and regenerative culture to really allow to arrive somewhere, both as I hear you, to experience the pain of what happened and the power of life that's possible everywhere. I might say it this way. Humans are literally animated dirt. We are minerals of the earth. We are water of the earth. We are air from the earth's atmosphere that has been animated, that has come to life. The modern world creates a very powerful illusion, which is the illusion of universality. The idea that there's universal time, which is actually factually untrue. Universal time is a concept that was destroyed by quantum mechanics. For those who don't know, uh, one of the key discoveries in quantum mechanics is that the speed of light remains the same, no matter what the reference frame is. You take two different frames of reference that are moving with respect to each other, and the speed of light always remains the same. This is something that um, Albert Einstein is famous for, for really describing in a powerful way. What this means is that the universality is that everything is always in context and related to context. Even light is related to context. Mm -hmm. And that subtlety comes back to show that the idea that there can be universal time, which actually we have things called universal time zones. Like I am currently in the Columbia time zone, which happens to be the same as New York. But with daylight savings time, North America will shift, Columbia stays the same, and Columbia will be the same time as Chicago. But there's a, a so-called universal time frame that mm. compares those. The problem is that there's nothing that is universal outside of our relationships, mm-hmm. which is to say that 
we only exist in relationships. I exist right now as a human being that is breathing oxygen from trees in Colombia. Why is that? Because there's a distance that the oxygen is traveling where it's produced in the photosynthesis of plants to arrive to my lungs. Mm -hmm. So my breathing has a place. And that's just a fact that should be very obvious to say that I'm breathing the oxygen directly around my head because it enters through my nose and my mouth. And my nose and my mouth are always in a place. So they're always in a relationship to that place. If someone were to teleport me into outer space where there's no oxygen, I would bring in the empty void of the of outer space into my lungs and my lungs would collapse and I would die instantly. So this relationship to place is fundamental. But what's really powerful is to recognize historically all of the regenerative cultures that we know of were indigenous cultures. Mm -hmm. And indigenous cultures are already, were always connected to a landscape. It's sort of funny, actually, a lot of the names we have for indigenous cultures, when someone would ask them, what is the name of your people? They would give the name of their land as the name of their people. Because the colonizer culture separates those. You know, the Romans and the Sicilians are not the same. The Sicilians are the people of an island, and the Romans are an empire of colonizer culture. So the name of the people and the name of the land are not the same. But if you look at where I grew up in the United States, I grew up in the state of Missouri. Well, Missouri, the, the word Missouri, is a mispronounced name of the indigenous people who lived near present-day St. Louis. There were French settlers, French explorers in the center of North America. They met these people. They asked them the name of the people. And the people said their name, which is the name of their land. And then the French mispronounced and wrote down the name as Missouri, which later became the English name. Mm -hmm. And so this, this connection is really profound, that indigenous people see themselves as being the children of mountains and rivers and other features of their landscapes. Those are their brothers and sisters and their ancestors. And it's not simply a spiritual or a religious concept. It's a key part of their cultural identity as being from a specific place. Mm -hmm. And this can also be related to totemic animals, like the people of the Great Plains of North America being the buffalo people, or the people of Northwestern North America being the salmon people. They're connecting themselves to animals that are part of a specific landscape. Mm -hmm. And so this is a really key thing, is to become part of a regenerative culture, is to become, uh, to enter into a path of becoming indigenous again to return to indigeneity, which then, is a very deep ancestral connection. Uh, then let me ask, uh, let me ask me the question that uh, at least in my understanding is kind of the difficult question here, because I understand where you're coming from, uh, how this uh, regenerative relationship to land is always an indigenous relationship to land. And you even said to, to, to come indigenous again, but obviously are we are living also in a different world than the indigenous people did over hundreds of thousands of years. We don't live just in a landscape anymore. Uh, you grew up in Missouri, you're in Colombia right now. You are talking with me, I'm not in Missouri, I'm not in Colombia, I'm in Germany right now. So we are in different places at the same time, we are in a global context. 
we are not only contextualized uh, by uh, the air that uh, was produced by the trees that are in, in my way uh, is here in the central Germany, uh, the, the oaks. Uh, are, we are also contextualized by a global industry, by a, a, a global uh, economic system, and we are more and more contextualized by a global brain called the Internet uh, that are uh, Right now, someone like Elon Musk even bought a centerpiece of this global brain called Twitter as a private property of our, uh, the, all the uh, nerve systems that we created in an electronic way. So there's a new uh, algorithmic cyber reality that is of global nature that we are also part of. So when you're talking about becoming indigenous again, uh, relating to landscape again, how does this relate to these layers of realities that we're also living in? One of the most important differences between what is possible to create now and what existed for indigenous people before modernity is the possibility of having planetary consciousness. Uh -huh. And this really began with the discovery of the earth from space to see the blue marble that the earth is contained in a finite amount of space. Mm -hmm. So I'm really talking about the last 50 or 60 years that this planetary consciousness became systemic, um, something we can experience directly with our bodies and something that we began to understand in powerful ways with information. So we started to place satellites in space and uh, sensor networks in rivers. And we used computers to run calculations of the changes of the earth. And then we created visualizations of the, the outputs of those computer models, creating things like ocean and atmosphere coupled general circulation models that are used for climate studies. And what began to emerge during this time was both a powerfully integrated cybernetic globalist system mm -hmm. and also the birth of a planetarian system. Mm -hmm. And I want to make a very powerful difference between distinction between these words. One of the important founders of the bioregionalism movement was Peter Berg. He created the World Drum Foundation, or I'm sorry, the Planet Drum Foundation, and he was based in San Francisco. And he was very careful to say that he was a planetarian and he did not support globalism because his understanding of globalism was that we take the universality of the, of the modern world and we apply it to the world. You mm -hmm. live nowhere and everywhere. Mm -hmm. You can be a global employee of a multinational corporation and you can go from one office to another by changing cities, mm -hmm. which means the reality of the earth is irrelevant to a globalist perspective. The opposite is true for a planetarian. A planetarian says, right now I live in the northern part of the Andes mountain where three tectonic plates converge that are connected to the movement of air and water from the Pacific Ocean that is altered by the movement and air of, and water by the Amazon rainforest. And I am placed somewhere within the planet. And this planetarian view gives us a pathway to the future indigenous. Mm -hmm. The future indigenous are people who are deeply connected to a landscape 
and at the same time connected to the planet as a whole. Mm-hmm. So that if I do work to bring back the forests and the rivers where I live in Colombia, because I have a planetary view, I know that this has a connection to the climate systems east of me in the Amazon rainforest, mm-hmm. north of me in the Gulf of Mexico, and in other parts of the world. If I look at satellite data, I will see that dust from the Sahara Desert travels across the Atlantic to help produce rain over the Amazon rainforest. Mm -hmm. And I can see that with visual representations of satellite data. So I can start to see the Earth with the eyes of satellite data using my own eyes and my own brain so that I can have a consciousness of changes in the planet by looking at something like the Sahara Desert in Africa, Hmm. changing the weather patterns, or moving mushroom spores or other botanical, like plant-based materials across the ocean between the continents. And this combination of planetary and landscape is where we can have coherence for everything that's happening in our planetary system. No, that makes a lot of sense, and uh, I find it fascinating, the distinction that you made between global and planetary and how it relates uh, to the regional landscape consciousness. There's one dimension missing that I would like to bring in, and that's our relatedness to each other. And uh, with our relatedness to each other, I mean two dimensions. One, us as the human species, the eight billions that we are right now in this moment that we just became a couple of months ago. And then, of course, us also in our relatedness to the more than human spheres that we are embedded in. But if we focus on our relatedness as humans in this not global, but planetary consciousness that you're describing, how do we relate to each other to really create relationships? Because our you cannot have relationship with eight billion people. It's just not possible. Our, we are contextualized by the consciousness industry. We are contextualized uh, by uh, colonial uh, structures. We are cont- contextualized by big tech companies and their algorithm. Uh, how can we together uh, become indigenous again in a way that has a planetary context that holds all of us and holds all of us in relationship. That seems to be a pretty tall task. Let me start with the epic universe story, the kind of story that Brian Swim would tell us about or that the big history uh, story would tell us about, which is that all humans are from the same human race and we're all descendants of ancestors that are part of the biosphere of the earth. So for starters, all humans are humans and we're all children of the earth. So a very important connection is even though you're in Germany and if you didn't speak English and I didn't speak German, we'd have a very difficult time communicating, but we can at least look into each each other's eyes and see that we're both humans and that we are from a common ancestor whether that's consciously understood or implied, Mm -hmm. that we're both the same in a fundamental way as being humans first and then culturally different later. And our languages and our cultures are less than our commonality. They're parts of our commonality. Or to say it differently, the entire inheritance of the human race 
is all of our cultures, not one or another. So humans are a unified species with common inheritance, but its inheritance includes the diversity of cultures. So this is an important thing to just begin to see. And then we extend that with the story of biology and evolution, that we're all part of the same ancestry of all living beings. And this is important because this is a planetary story, not a landscape story. Mm -hmm. Planetary. Whether we say that all humans came from Africa and Africa used to be part of Pangea, that all of the continents at different times have been completely unified and then they've broken apart. All of those are part of the, the planetary story. The question then becomes, how do we organize our story? Because our story includes all of the cultures that exist and all of our languages and all of our technologies and, and many different things. And something that I learned from when I worked with George Lakoff doing research in cognitive linguistics was that the human body creates the mind and human minds are embodied, which means the way that our mind works is fundamentally shaped by the organizing structures of our brains and our bodies, and how our bodies relate to our environments. There are structuring patterns of how photons hit the retinas of our eyes and enter into the optic nerve and are shaped by the structure of our brain, and that shapes how we conceive and understand things. And there's a huge richness about embodied mind and embodied consciousness. I bring this up because there's another level of embodied consciousness which is ecosystems and landscapes. Mm -hmm. What the field of biogeography explains. Biogeography tells us that there are evolutionary pathways for entire ecosystems that are shaped by geography. When Alexander von Humboldt came to Columbia and started exploring the Andes, the Andes mountains are very special because they go through a very large change in elevation over a very short distance in time with many different river valleys. So if you go from one valley to another, you, you may only go 20 kilometers, but you can have completely different types of ecosystems that have independent evolutionary histories. Mm -hmm. They may be 10 kilometers apart and have a common ancestor that's a million years old mm. because of biogeography. And this starts to show us that we can look at the evolutionary history of life as it relates to the shape of landscapes. And we can start to understand the diversity of human cultures as the diversity of evolution of culture in landscapes. Mm -hmm. I'll just give a very specific uh, example from the evolution of language. The evolution of language is a huge body of diverse research. So there's a lot of things that are studied. But one thing that's fairly well studied now is that there are some human languages that have more vowel sounds than consonants. And there are other sounds that have more consonants than vowels. And the primary predictor of the difference is the type of landscape. Mm. Languages that evolve in large open spaces like the Great Plains of North America or the Serengeti of Africa, where people can see each other from a long distance away and call out over long distances, they tend to have more functional languages that use vowels and not consonants. Whereas if you're in a dense jungle and you don't even see another human until they're three meters away from you and you speak more quietly, that you use more clicking sounds of the mouth and make more consonants. Mm -hmm. 
So languages evolve with landscapes. Just to give you a, a flavor mm. of how cultural evolution corresponds with landscape. This is important because the way that we tell the human story as a planetary story is we create a planetary network of bioregional economies. Each bioregion, each landscape as a functional unit creates its own culture appropriate to that landscape, its own economic model appropriate to that landscape. And then it engages in sovereign exchanges with other landscapes so that we can have a planetary economy that is a network of bioregional economies. Mm-hmm. And this is actually how the biosphere works because of biogeography. So this is biomimicry. This is imitra- imitating the intelligence of nature to reproduce the conditions of sustainable human cultures. And then you can see that it's both a landscape story and at the same time a planetary story. So every human culture is both planetary and bioregional at the same time. In an image that you shared on Twitter, uh, that's called regeneration as a system change, uh, where you uh, brought a lot of dimensions of, of interconnectedness One term that you brought that, that I found very interesting, you, uh, it's called cosmo, cosmo localization, community of communities. Uh, how can we create that? One simple way we can create that is um, with a metaphor, such mm-hmm. as you and I are both under the same, st- the same sky. And as the earth turns, we will see the same stars. So we can have a, a cosmovision that is larger than our location. And then we can share it between locations. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, I can look and see, oh, that's a guamo tree. That's a native species of, species of tree that exists here, but it doesn't exist in Germany. So I can relate to that tree that I'm looking at right now. And you may have never seen a guamo tree. You may have no idea what one looks like. And so I can have this local relationship to the flora and fauna of my place. Mm-hmm. And it's the combination that I can look at the same stars from where I am and have a cosmological vision that allows me to say, those are the same stars you are looking at. Mm-hmm. When the earth rotates, you will be looking at the same, sc- same stars. But our reference frame for those to be the same is the turning of the earth. It's mm-hmm. the planetary awareness It says we're both on the same earth. We're just in different places. We know the earth turns. And as the earth turns, we will see the same stars. Mm-hmm. And to rough approximation, they'll look the same because those stars are so far away relative to the distance between us on the earth. You and I are only a few thousand kilometers away, whereas those stars are millions and millions of kilometers away. So to close approximation, they look the same. Mm-hmm. And the planet is our common reference frame. Mm-hmm. But then we have local ecology, local th- local relationships in our local place that are mm-hmm. very different. Mm-hmm. Like I have the guamo tree, but you have the oak tree. Mm-hmm. And so this cosmo-localism is the recognition that the planet becomes our shared frame of reference. And then within the planet, we relate from our bodies to what is immediately close to us. Mm-hmm. And that both of them are true at the same time. When you talk about this vision of uh, 
uh, a bioregional economy that is networked around the world. Uh, the way I hear you is uh, that very different how a modernist economy organizes where basically place doesn't play any role beside uh, what I can extract from there. Uh, there, there are, there's a deep uh, interrelatedness uh, of a, a bioregion, all life forms and human life form being part of this life form and able to create human culture in context of this life form and connecting all these bioregions around the globe in a way that they respect their uh, particular identities and their relatedness in one global ecological reality that we, as you described, are only recently really becoming aware of, particularly also by seeing the Earth from the Moon, or at least uh, from out there. And I aware that, well, wait a moment, this is one place. Uh, this is one place that is alive and is, is very interrelated. And we are living in these different regions, uh, so I I can see uh, our relatedness to the, uh, to these regions are becoming uh, rooted in place. At the same time, uh, Earth is already an interrelated ecosystem since uh, millions of years before we even arrived at it. So there is already one layer of interrelatedness that is happening that in fact created us. But there is another form of interrelatedness that we created as a species uh, that uh, is at this point dangerous because uh, it has this extractive, it has this colonial form that you were describing that is literally driving uh, this earth uh, to an ecological breakdown right now. How can we use our capacities, also our technological capacities, to bring these two forms of interrelatedness, uh, the, 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 the natural relatedness of Earth and our, let's call it also technological relatedness, in sync with each other, so that uh, they can uh, be synergetic and not opposite to each other. Is there uh, something that you're envisioning, or something that you're seeing happening? There's something very powerful that I see happening. And I want to step back just for a moment and give a, a theoretical lens for us to look through, mm -hmm. which again comes from the study of cultural evolution. It goes by two names. Sometimes it's called dual inheritance, and sometimes it's called gene culture co-evolution, mm -hmm. which is that cultural evolution is happening and genetic evolution is happening at the same time, mm -hmm. but they have different mechanisms and different capacities but they also affect each other. So cultural evolution can change genetic evolution and genetic evolution can change cultural evolution. It's a bi-directional relationship. I bring this up because what happened in the human lineage that is different from other animals is that cultural evolution or the evolution of social behavior became different enough from the rest of biological evolution I would still say it's all it's all within biological evolution. Hmm. We need to extend biology to include all of culture because that's what's true. Whether people know that or not, that's just what's true. So cultural evolution is a part of biological evolution. It's not completely separate. But in humans, it functions differently. And cultural evolution can go much faster than genetic evolution. Thousands of times faster. 
And that creates this possibility that we can believe culture is separate from biology. We can experience it in our bodies as though that separation is real, even though it's not true. So part of the way that we envision this regenerative culture spreading or this way of having regenerative cultures spreading is by recognizing that human culture is a living system, that it's part of biology, that it's Mm -hmm. part of the earth, Mm -hmm. and that we can become intentional, or as David Sloan Wilson, the evolutionary biologist, likes to say, we can become wise managers of our own evolutionary process. We can learn how cultural evolution works and become conscious of it. And then we can manage our evolutionary process. I'll give you an example. Last year, I was beginning a process of dissolving my marriage. My wife wanted to start seeing other people. We started separating, but in a slow motion way because we have a child. And during a period of about one year, I had a difficult time relating to love and women and sex and other parts of being a man who had a wife and now was in a process of no longer having a wife. And the place where I found sanctuary and healing was to connect to the land. I was doing reforestation work and creating water retention systems and started experiencing my pain and my loneliness and my sadness by connecting to the land. And I was surprised to discover that I could relate to the land the way that I relate to a human lover. I could have intimacy and vulnerability and pleasure and connection and lots of very deep feelings that I feel in like a romantic or a sexual relationship. But it was different because it wasn't a human relationship. It was human, human relating to the earth. And what became powerful was that my imagination started to shift. I started to feel that I could experience things differently. And I started to see that I could deeply and intimately connect with the earth. That I could feel the aliveness of the earth as I restored soil and water in a way that in my body would feel similar to feeling the aliveness of a lover as they're becoming aroused, even though it was not sexual, what I was experiencing. It was just that I had a human capacity to relate, that I could connect to land. And this is very powerful because This tells us that we can experience cultural evolution as it's happening. We can experience how culture is changing as it's happening. Mm -hmm. I experienced how I relate changing. And I could become intentional. How would I relate to the land as a lover to help heal my traumas as my marriage was ending? Mm -hmm. And I began doing therapeutic work and trauma healing work with myself as my marriage was ending, which means I was managing my evolutionary process. Mm. So there's a whole body of work in what's called pro-social that we could talk about, about how to create effective groups and how to change our emotional responses and how to guide our own behavioral change. There's a whole context there we could talk about if we had more time. But what I wanna stress right now is that by, by becoming aware that these parts of culture are evolutionary and becoming aware that it can be studied and learned how evolution works, we can actually guide and intentionally shape how cultural evolution occurs. Mm -hmm. And in doing this, we can create the context to birth regenerative cultures. Mm -hmm. 
maybe allow me also to use this as the, the last question. Uh, regenerative culture also seems to happen. There's something happening around the globe uh, that is very much related to this vision. What are you seeing happening here? One thing that we experienced a little over a month ago, an event that we had in Barichara, Colombia, we gathered people from what's called the Web3 or crypto worlds, which is basically all of the people using digital tools that share ownership and governance. So think of Facebook, you can create content, but you don't own it and you don't govern it. A private corporation does. So Web3 and crypto are about how do we use digital tools where we can create the content and own it together and collectively own it and we can collectively govern it. So we brought people who do this kind of work, many different kinds of people. And what we experienced was the manifestation of a new world where deep indigenous medicinal practices of this place in Colombia could speak in a mutually respectful way and create together with digital tool creators from the Web3 world. Mm -hmm. So what I see being born right now all over the planet are people who are feeling regenerative culture. They have different levels of understanding and clarity about what it is, but they're feeling it. And increasingly, they're connecting it to place. And as they connect it to place, while also maintaining this planetary communication system, they're able to share resources and knowledge. So we were able to bring money from the global world to support local projects. We were able to cultivate local governance of those projects and then show this to the tool builders in the digital world. And those tool builders in the digital world wanted to see this happen. So they began to collaborate with us to show us how to use the tools so that we could own and govern the use of the tools, mm -hmm. which then further shaped how they developed those tools. So what I see happening in the world right now is regenerative culture is being born in many places where extractive cultures are dying. It's a composting process. Mm -hmm. And slowly, but it's going faster than before, people are becoming aware at the same time that this is happening so that they can begin to guide it. And what we hope will happen in the next three to five years is that people will recognize how deeply we're already part of landscapes and start to organize themselves into bioregions and collaborate from one bioregion to another. Joe, there's so much more I would like to ask. We are running out of time. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation. Mm, thank you for inviting me. It's always lovely to be 